Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, Chris Barton is with me. Chris, thanks for taking time out of your afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to focus on a specific question that's been raised, was originally raised a couple months back by a student and has come up, I think, in every single class I've taught since then in one form or another. And that is, how do you get people who don't want to do Agile to want to do Agile? Um, and so before we talk about that, Chris, would you mind giving a little bit of background on kind of the work that you do and your origin story? Yeah, no problem. So yeah, my name is Chris Barton. You guys can reach me on LinkedIn or you can shoot me an email, chris.barton at leadingagile.com. If you ever have any questions about anything we talk about on here. Um, for Leading Agile right now, I'm on an engagement that we call a 2PP, two-person and on a platform where we essentially come in and do a define the end state, which is creating the conditions for a company or an enterprise to go through a, a transformation. How did I get here? Um, I don't know if I can name the places, but I can say I've worked in fintech for over a decade prior to coming here. I've worked at places that make very popular video games. Um, and prior to, the, to that, I um, was in the military. I spent some time in the Navy. Uh, those are very disparate, you know, backgrounds maybe, but the, the the thing that ties them all together is process improvement. Each of those places, the impact I was able to make was some type of efficiency, um, whether that was saving money, saving time, um, or make, you know creating a work-life balance that benefited the team. That, that's what I'm all about. And that's what I'm here for. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, so here's the situation. We've got somebody who's gone through, like, you know, maybe they're learning how to be a scrum master or a product owner. They're working with the team, and the people on their team have been doing stuff their own way for a long time, and they're pretty comfortable, and they don't really see much of a benefit from changing. And many of these organizations are places where they change what they're doing every several months. So they don't really see any point in putting much effort into engaging in an agile way of working because they don't believe it'll be here. Um, gotcha. When you are somebody who is at the level of Scrum Master or Product Owner, like, I mean, when you walk in, you walk into this as an outside consultant, people listen to you. But that's not always the case for somebody who's kind of early on in the role of Scrum Master or if they're really early in the transformation. How do you entice people on the development side to want to completely change everything they're doing <laughs> in the name of <laughs> in the name of making something better that they may not even believe can get better. Yeah. So there's a couple ways to do that, right? I think data is a really powerful tool. So if you can get someone to look at or start measuring where they are now, okay. And you know, set up some type of small incremental change, you know, an easy win yeah. to show an improvement. I think that creates an opportunity for someone to align with you so that you know that's a buy-in opportunity that's a collaboration opportunity um i think the biggest thing to remember like being in a scrum master role being in a product owner role is you are operating in a influence without authority like banner yeah so how how can you do that um it can be tough. I think the best way to do it is to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one. like a really common pattern that I've had success with when there's divergence in a group is sitting down and figuring out 
why people are fearful of change. Everybody has a reason, right? So uh-huh. you want to validate that person, listen to what that fear is. And it, it does take time, right? One-on-ones, it's, it takes time, but it's important. Um, and then, you know, see if you can come to a shared understanding or a shared perspective. You do that one-on-one the next time you're in a group setting. So a scrum master, um, it could be a retro. You could, you could create an activity around resolving the perceived issue. And since you've talked to everybody, you're, they don't know this, but you know this, um, they're now all in alignment. So that activity is going to be a very fruitful, positive, uh, outcome. That that's a way to do it. Okay. So I have, I, when you were talking, there were two things that popped into my head, one or maybe three. One was, I agree with everything you're saying, but I am also thinking about this from the perspective that you and I are both of a certain age where we had this battle a long time ago and we figured out how to navigate it a long time ago. And in hindsight, it's really easy for both of us probably to say like, well, this is what you, you know, what I would have done. I'm trying to remember when I didn't have sway over people, how I got them to be open to change. And part of it, I think, is to the conversations like you just mentioned. To me, a big part of it is trying to understand like what sucks in their world and how can I make how can I make that pain go away for them with what I want to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, addressing a pain, I mean People have an aversion to agile. You'll hear big A, little A, like however to get that dirty word to fit. Um, all I think agile, one of the benefits of agile, you know, in software delivery and and outside of software delivery, is the iterative improvement approach. I mean, if you're looking from the lens of continuous improvement, yeah. Um, sometimes you pick your battles and you got to pick the ones that fit the most. Um, I can give an example. I was a product manager that was fulfilling a scrum master role on a very lean team. We had three developers and we had two product managers. They were also more or less the sales guys for this product. It was a multi-custodial financial tool. Um, meaning it, it could interact with, you know, Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Fidelity all at the same time. So it was a very powerful tool. And these, this development team, fantastic, very smart guys, but we were doing a lot of support work that we were leveraging them for. And then we were doing like two releases a year, um, which really slowed down our sales funnel because people ask for things and it would go on a multi-year wait list. So the first thing that we wanted to do was start tracking work. And we, at the time they were tracking everything in, in a spreadsheet. So I was like, Hey, let's, let's move to Jira and like, let's go to two week sprints. And, and they're like, we don't that just doesn't make sense. We can't right. break da- work down to that size. <laughs> I was like, well, why don't we do this? It's like, let's keep our, let's shorten it. Let's do a eight week sprint. That's two months. And then we'll agree on what we're going to do in that, in that eight weeks. And we're going to track it through Jira. And they're like, that's fine. That's fine. It's like, here's the caveat guys. I was like, if we can't deliver half of the things that we said we we're going to do, um, would you guys be willing to shorten the sprint? And they go, sure. It's like, that's ah, not going to so happen. You, okay. So you raise the stakes. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's like, a good idea. Create, create a level of accountability and give people the, you know, the autonomy. Like, dude, if you guys are delivering everything you said in eight weeks, I don't, I don't care that you yeah, have a two months spring. Awesome. Yeah. You know, um, no, nothing was delivered by the way, at the end of that two, <laughs> at the end of that uh, eight weeks, two months, not one single feature was delivered. 
Um, they've got some bug fixes, um, but they were pretty low hanging fruit from a, a bug perspective. Okay. So that was a win for me or that, and I, I would say that's a win for the team that gave credibility and Hey, maybe this guy, some way of working might benefit us. Um, and what happened over time was those quicker release cadences allowed us to forecast better. Yeah. It would allow us to communicate with our customers better. And, it, and to be honest, it took a lot of the, 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 I don't know, the pressure off the development team where, you know, their feet weren't being held to the fire every, you know, yeah. going through a release cycle. Cause when you do a six month release or a two month release, and you put something in regression testing, it stays there a lot longer than you thought it would. Yeah. Well, I think what's cool about the solution you just mentioned is that you let the dev team show themselves that it didn't work, what they were doing. Yeah, like I think you that's didn't really, really important. have to talk them into it. Um, John Cutler is a guy I've done interviews with for my other podcast, and he told me once that when he has a team that doesn't deliver in two weeks, he switches to one-day sprints just to like really hammer in the discipline and breaking your work down into smaller pieces. Um, I wanted awesome. to, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. I'm over at Amplitude. I'm, I'm scared of that, but I, it's really <laughs> cool. Um, I, I do have one thing not to do. So this is something that happened to me when, when I was doing waterfall project management, one of the first conversations about, I had about agile, this developer who I had a lot of respect for. He came into the room and he sat down in the chair on the other side of my desk. And it was like, Dave, we need to switch to Agile. And we were already like weeks behind on the project. And I looked over the t desk and I'm like, oh, really, Tom? Why? And he goes, we need to improve our quality of life. And I just looked at him like, you're a developer. You don't get quality of life. Go back in there and code something. <laughs> and I mean, I'm ashamed now of my answer. But, but the thing was, he came to me and told me we needed to improve something that I didn't think was broken. I didn't think needed fixing. And that was a really easy way to not win that argument. Um, which I think a lot of people do. They say, well, we need to switch to Agile because whatever, whatever, whatever. And if you're fixing a problem nobody thinks they have, what's the point of going through the hassle? Yeah, I think what you're touching on is like this This doesn't only apply to Scrum Masters. I think this applies to anybody that um, has any aspirations to have a career um, working with people is being able to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, which is one of those intangible skills that is critical for a scrum master, um, being able to listen and, and something that I really like hearing that, you know, Mike says is what's the question behind the question. Mm -hmm. Someone says, I think we need to go agile. Um, there's a reason that they're saying that. And that, that reason is what you need to find. That's what you want to hunt for because that's where the problem solving starts. That's where that alignment starts. Yeah. And that's where, you know, building trust starts. I think, and Mike is a great example because he has the ability to, I, I always say like Mike could be in the desert and run across somebody with like a broken styrofoam cup and a paperclip. And within 10 minutes, he'd have them convinced that they had to switch to agile in order to get out of the desert and get water. <laughs> Cause he can, he has this way of reducing stuff to what he calls first principles, like basic common core beliefs that we all share. He decomposes the situation down to that. So we have common ground. And then you can build it back up from there. So that, to me, that's a lot more skillful than just showing up and trying to fix a problem somebody has. But if you can do that, if you can find that common ground, that could be a really good way to entice someone into being open to change too. 100%. And it's, it's definitely easier to say than to do. I, mean, take, I think that's one of those things that some people have that inherent intangible skill. Yeah. It can absolutely be learned, but it, it, it can take time uh, yeah. because – 
it's kind of almost counterintuitive to what a lot of folks are taught how to interact with people. You know, there's, we're, we're coming out of the management age and into the leadership age. And those are very different styles of working with people. So, okay. So kind of going with that, like, how would you lead somebody into being more open to this? Like when you walk in, right, as, a, as somebody who's guiding a transformation or leading a transformation, there's going to be people that are resistant, that don't want to do it. How do you get them to the well and get them to want to drink? Yeah. So that, that's the same thing, whether you're a consultant, a scrum master, you're a senior manager, um, when you're coming in and, and you're advocating for change, um, the biggest part is making sure that everyone's on the same page and consistent from a leadership perspective, right? Okay. You got to make sure you have that alignment. That's critical. Um, the next step is being consistent in your messaging. Um, if you're saying something, you feel like you're saying something too much, it's probably the right amount because you know you can ah. say something in a meeting, you can say something in an email, you can say something in your Teams or in Slack. Um, and chances are somebody probably only saw it once, and, even though you put it in those yeah. places. Yeah. Um, the other part I think is when issues arise or concerns arise, there's a balancing act. Like sometimes valid concern versus noise. I think that takes some time to learn which one is which, but if you err on the side of caution and let somebody voice that noise and let them feel that they've been heard that creates a foundation for trust. Okay. Um, same thing where if they have a valid concern, that's what, that's why feedback loops are so critical is someone has a valid concern. Hey, I've been here for 15 years and we have this, uh, deprecated database that is going to be an issue, um, for you guys, you guys coming in here and talking about implementing RESTful APIs. That's not going to happen unless we change this. You're like, we're, why weren't we talking to this guy two weeks ago? Right. <laughs> um, that that's the moral of that little blip is um, it's important to listen to people. Okay. So I want to try. You just mentioned some stuff that seems like it would be pretty obvious why anybody on the development side would want to change it. But one of the things I remember the first time I heard about test driven development, I thought it was like absolute genius. Um. But if I'm a developer who works in an environment where I'm like, you know, the rock star that saves the world, um, I like being a team of one, and you're trying to convince me to switch what I do to do to pair and do TDD, um, how would I mean? How would you approach that conversation? Because that seems like all you're doing is slowing me down. Yeah. So. I think it comes down to having a real conversation with that person and figuring out what it is that they want to give back to the organization. It's okay. great to have a stellar developer that can do everything. Like, let's say that this is a full stack developer and like, it's one of the few that you have in your company. Yeah. Um, how often are they taking vacation? How often are they having dinner with their family? Like, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe they, value spending time coding and that's what they love to do. There's got to be some kind of something that they're giving up to be able to do that. And coming in from the front, the mindset or perspective of look, man, if you show other people how to do this, you can learn how to do something else. You can learn how to take that next step in your career if you want to, or you can spend more time doing the thing that you're not doing because you're doing this, whatever that is. Yeah. 
Um, that that's a, that's again, that's an approach. Um, sometimes people are like, nah, it's like, I just want to do this. Like it's a job security thing. If yeah, I teach people I like how to do this, I won't ego. be valuable anymore. I like yeah. being the rock star. Um, you know, without sounding like one, I don't think that that's really the case. It's pretty rare that there's that much ego. Um, if that is the case, you, that's where you ask yourself, um, if you're in a leadership role is like, is this the environment that I want to create for my workforce? Yeah. Um, cause I, I don't think the answer is yes to that. So that's where you have a conversation with that person and figure out, you know, where, um, their priorities are. Yeah. Um, is it, is it, you know, suiting the needs of the organization or is it suiting their individual needs? Cause you know, as organizations grow, we do need multi-skilled folks. And if someone's kind of, hoarding that um opportunity it kind of puts the they're kind of putting the organization in a bad spot to make a decision they probably don't want to make yeah i worked at a place where we had that situation they eventually just let the guy go and took the hit and and everybody else had to actually figure out what that person had been doing um but it was it was like that one single point of failure was holding the company hostage basically Um, yep and that's you know, that's, that's not an acceptable risk, to be honest, from an yeah. organizational perspective. Now, I think that's an outlier scenario. I think it, yeah. most people, given the chance to mentor, will jump on it. I've, I've very rarely seen um, a developer not want to mentor somebody. Okay. So what about, I want to talk about generational stuff. So there's an older generation, right? Folks that are kind of in the boomer area. There are a lot of people that... Um, they just, they're riding it out, right? They don't, they don't want to go through all this upheaval. They don't want to go through all this change. Do they have an obligation to change or can, is there, does there need to be a space for people to stick with the comfortable thing that they know if that's their preference? Yeah. So that's like, that's such a big spaghetti question. Um, and I'm I not. And I, answer, I should, I should yeah. say I'm not saying everybody in that age group is like that, but there are some people that are like that. Totally. Well, it's not even an age group. I mean, you can yeah. that. That's there are a lot of people in that age group where you know the scenario is they're getting close to retirement. They're very happy with the success that they've achieved, and they like the flexibility of being an expert in something. Mm-hmm. Gives them to where it's you know you don't have that mental fog of learning something new and constant change. It's very reliable. That, that applies to everybody, not just people that are like yeah. in, the, in the sunset of their career. Um, you know, an example that doesn't fall into that demographic is somebody that's a working mother that's very good at something. Um, they may just may not have the time to commit to yeah. being able to like, yeah, man, I'm, I'd love to take on all these additional responsibilities. That might be true. They may, just might not have the capacity. So there's a couple of different scenarios that I, I think that that applies to, or like that you can address, right? One is if somebody's really good at something awesome and like, that's what they're going to hone in on. Cool. Let them be the backbone of whatever that is. Um, and like give them opportunities, like never take it off the table where it's like, Hey, come join our retro. We want you, you are a part of the team. We want you to participate. Even if you're just hanging out in the background, laughing at us, you know, doing these silly cards that we're doing remotely. Like we, we want you there. And then, they, I, you know, there's people on teams everywhere I've worked where it goes a couple different ways. They start getting into it. They appreciate being a part of a team. Um, and then there's folks that 
just really happy with what they're doing and they don't aren't looking for like career trajectory or career growth, there's roles for those folks. You know, um, I think a really good example is somebody that's like a level one in a knock, right? Like they, they have their SOPs. They probably helped create them at one time and they just, they run through them. And, um, until like there's budget to automate that stuff, like they're going to be the go-to person. If something breaks, they're yeah. going to be the go-to person for escalations. Cause they know everybody like that's cool. Let them stay there. Now, do we still want to be inclusive and in bringing them into our cadences and ceremonies? Absolutely. Are we going to shotgun them in the middle of the meeting? No way. Like that, you know, that's just going to turn them off from it. Okay. Um, I, th- I think that's the, I don't know if it's a responsibility of a scrum master. It's definitely a responsibility of a leader. And I see a lot of scrum masters yeah. playing, wearing that leader hat is optimizing the strengths of your team. So I want to try to say this back and make sure that I'm capturing it and also just restate it for folks that are listening. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's going to be people that take to agile and there's going to be people that don't want to. And if they don't want to try to find, always leave the door open, right? Always let them know they're welcome. We want them to participate, but see if you can find a place for them where they can do what they love and leverage their strengths. But, try to make sure it's not in a way that weakens the organization overall. Like if we have that cowboy rock star that is a liability because they're the only one who can do this stuff, that's something we want to address. But if there's work Absolutely. like the, the, the knock worker that you mentioned, that stuff's going to have to get done. Somebody's going to have to do it. And if there's somebody that wants to do it, that's a good thing. Frees up the rest of the team to run, you know, whatever experiments they want. Right. Absolutely. I mean, even look at from like a, how people interact with, with each other. There's, there's two ends of a spectrum. There's introvert and extrovert. There's some people that thrive and get energy from being around others. And there's other people where like it is the last thing they want to do. Some people become developers because it allows them to contribute as an individual contributor. Yeah. So some of getting, being a part of a group, literally drains them by the end of that day they're exhausted like they, they come to a retro and they're like man that was that was nice but i'm exhausted and i do not want to do that tomorrow i'm so glad they're two weeks apart right like that's that's okay like creating space for those people to be a part of the team while still being able to contribute um and and right we're making generous assumptions we, we hired the right people their intents mm-hmm. are good um the things that agile doesn't solve is bad hiring or people that are um i don't want to say just generally bad people because i don't i don't know that that's the right avenue to attack this um but we're making some assumptions that people want to be there people want to contribute they're looking for purpose they're looking for autonomy they're looking for mastery um and what we're saying is some people might have found that mastery and they're good where they're at yeah I am somebody who fought really hard against it. So I, I didn't want anything to do with this stuff. I thought it was completely stupid. I thought story points were the dumbest thing I'd ever heard of. And all of it was just excuses for developers to not plan anything. Um, and I, and I actively <laughs> fought against it. So like within, even within PMI, like I campaigned against agile for a really long time. Um, I didn't, I couldn't see how it was going to make anything any better. So I spent a lot of time like explaining to people why it was not going to work and a lot of time making sure it couldn't. But 
I mean, now I'm in, you know, obviously an amazing convert for it, but I think it's important to also give the people that are resistant a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I couldn't see it and I didn't trust it until I saw it work. So for me, like the whole barrier was trust. I'd been burned so many times. It wasn't really, I didn't really care about agile. I just didn't believe that people could actually rise up and do what they were supposed to do. Um, so maybe there's also ways that you can, you know, you kind of mentioned this before, like reduce the risk, show them smaller ways that this stuff can actually help and you can trust people again. Um, and then they might be more open to it. Like there, there might be indirect ways of helping them find their path to it. Yeah. I mean, when you distill any of the ways of working, um, that people are starting to adopt, um, it's becoming much more human centric. You hear the word empathy a lot more. You hear the yeah. word trust a lot more. You hear the word collaboration a lot more. It's, you know, we're, we're not in an industrial age where we're just cranking out widgets. Like people we're getting to the point where a technology needs to have a human touch and humans need to build that technology for it to have that human touch. And they need to build it together. Yes. Collaborative way. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the introvert extrovert thing. Cause I am somebody who gets very taxed from working with others. But I also, and this is something that just like recently had to come to grips with again. It's exhausting given the choice of working with others or working alone. I would always choose working alone, but a hundred percent of the time working with others produces better results. Yeah. Right. Isn't it's that like, crazy. Well, it's just counterintuitive for my comfort. And I think that, that to me is a big part of this too. Like I don't mind working with people that are resistant to this stuff, but if they're not willing to be a little uncomfortable and run experiments and try to change that, I am not okay with. Yeah. And so you're now you're getting down a road of what were the conditions that created the person that's in front of me? Yeah. Um, like who hurt you? Like kind of thing. Like, yeah. How, who burned the, who burned them in the past that they don't, they don't trust this. <laughs> I think I could probably produce a list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, that's, that's one of the things that like, that's a hurdle that you have to overcome. If you're a scrum master, if you're in a leadership role, if you're a product owner, if yeah. you're a lead developer, like that's, the, if you are going to come in and be like, Hey, we need to work together. Someone's going to be like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'll be over here by myself. <laughs> yep. So like, you know, that takes time. Yeah. I have one last one and this one might be, might be a bit of a leap, but I want to see if there's any advice you have. Um, I had someone in class last week, um, younger person, female scrum master for a team working in an organization with sort of a legacy culture, very good old boy culture. Um, engineering centric culture and she is the scrum master for a group of people who are much more senior than her um, very steeped in their ways and she's trying to entice them into working in an agile way but they're very much they don't really have any interest and they they tend to treat her like schedule my meeting like like a secretary basically so that's something I have seen a lot and I've worked with a lot of project managers in that situation. But I'm wondering if you have any tips for somebody who's working with engineers or developers on that side of the house. Like what are are there some things that you could do to gain a foothold of credibility or get them to be open to seeing you as more than just your secretary? 
Or, or is so, that like a non-starter? So I think the answer is there's probably someone, most people might be very quick to be like, oh, this is, we need to go straight to HR. Um, I can, I can tell you from experience, HR is going, did you talk to the person first before you came to us? Right. So I, I I don't know if we can drop names so I can just say, um, this person's first name, who is one of the best scrum masters I've ever worked with, um, Helena and Helena is, she's from, she was from South America, very, very strong personality. And anytime she ran into a developer that had a similar mindset to what you're describing, she had very, very firm, fundamental principles that she would not compromise. Okay. And she would talk to that person individually. And then if it was something that happened in front of a group, she had no qualms with letting that person know that what she, they had just done was unprofessional and not acceptable. And then she would follow up with that person as well after that. Wow. So she held boundaries that were incredibly respectful. If, if, I mean, to be honest, I wish that I had that been like that sooner in my career. Yeah. Um, because one, it's the right thing to do. Two, it's a very positive way to create an, a working environment that everyone feels safe in. Yeah. And then, and then three, like if that person is as bad as that perception that you picked up on is, that person probably shouldn't be working there. And I don't think that's always the case. I think people joke around. I think people get informal at work. Um, but when you, when someone crosses a line, I, I have seen them. I don't know if I want to throw a percentage out there. 95% of the time, people are very respectful of other people's boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's possible. They may not, um, maybe they're not aware of it. You know, maybe like they're just blind to it. Yeah, which, which like, is it doesn't make it okay, but does make it a place where calling out those boundaries and establishing them is the right thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think that applies everywhere, right? Like there have been times where I very much I have two kids, and sometimes I treat them very much like children, and they'll they'll call out. They can they will call me out on that. It's like, hey, dad, I got this. Yeah. Um, I don't need you to tell me how to do this. Um, or you're being really rude. Like you're talking to me, like, (laughs) I don't know how to do this. And I'm just like, it's one, it's weird as an adult to hear a child articulate things that way. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, you take a step back and you're like, wow, like they're not wrong. Like I need, maybe I need to address this in a different way. Yeah. I think that, and that's a really interesting thing. Like maybe you calling it out is actually helping that other person. Like, like they're, they're being, not helpful to you, but you have a chance to try to help them. I guess the thing I'm kind of stuck on, like everything we're talking about, I make sense to me, but if I'm a 23 year old female working with like a 40 year old white guy, who has been an engineer for the past 30 years. I don't know. Yeah. It might be harder. I, I, I think that it would be hard if you sit and swirl on, on what the potential outcomes would be. Yeah. I think if you focus on what's important to you, and I, th- and I think a lot of people have boundaries that okay. they want to uphold. If you uphold that boundary, I think at the end of the day, regardless of how that person feel good about um, it. receives it, you're going to feel better at the end of the day. That's a really good point. Okay. So you create the space you want to live and work in by letting people know 
where those boundaries are for you. Absolutely. And, really and like worst case scenario, like maybe that's the culture of the company. That's the wrong place for you. And now you know that sooner than later. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like if that, if that behavior is allowed to exist, maybe I'm in the wrong place or they're in the wrong place. Um, yep. One or the other. Okay. This was great, man. I really appreciate you helping out with this. Um, yeah. Well, I hope you, it's helpful. Yeah. You gave your contact information earlier on, but do you mind sharing it again, just in case anybody wants to reach out to you with follow-up? Yeah, questions? absolutely. Um, it's Christopher Barton at link on LinkedIn. So like if you just throw my name in there, uh, it's got a giant picture of my face with Yosemite behind it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then if you want to re- grab me via email, it's Chris.Barton. It's B-A-R-T-O-N. Like you drink at a ton of bars um, at leadingagile.com. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.